Good evening, everyone. Good early evening. Uh, please let me know if you can hear me. Please let me know how I sound. Sometimes there are some audio issues. I hope you are all doing well on this Sunday. Early evening out here in the East Coast of the United States. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Staying cool. If that is indeed what is afflicting you right now, this massive heat wave, East Coast of the United States is getting burned, China is getting burned, it is really hot. Uh, it is a really hot planet right now. So thank you, Cut the Pentagon, uh, for your audio check. Really appreciate that. So I definitely want to have a conversation. So definitely jump in the queue. Jump in the queue. Uh, to ask questions, comments, uh, whatever uh, may be on your mind. I can surely uh, do my best to respond. But uh, to begin, while uh, we wait for folks to come in, and while I wait for uh, any callers who may be interested in comments or questions, I didn't want to talk about something that I think, if you've been hearing my streams lately, you are quite familiar with. It has to do with the title of this particular episode, The Empire Has No Clothes. I'm referring to the American Empire, but of course, when we're talking about U.S. imperialism, we are talking about a real alliance of imperialist countries with the United States as the head of that alliance. And so what we are really witnessing right now, especially just in the last week or so is we are witnessing an increasing belligerence on the part of the American empire. And at this point, uh, the political class, the national security state, they don't see any reason to hide this from the, what could be called the general public, the American public, and really the world, because anything that the United States does or says about its role in the world, the rest of the world is, of course, paying close attention. So what's happened in recent, in the last week or so? Well, you had Joe Biden go to Israel, and he also visited Saudi Arabia, had a meeting with the Gulf Cooperation Council during his trip directly after his visit to Israel. He went on Channel 12 News, uh, which is what a lot of U.S. presidents do when they make their visit to the Zionist colonial state. And what he said, I think, was very, was very interesting because on the one hand, you had Biden be asked about something that is of growing concern to Israel, because as you know, Israel and the United States' relationship is very close, and they both depend on each other to achieve their geopolitical interests and to move forward upon them. So the United States uses Israel as a beachhead in the Middle East, a military beachhead in the Middle East, and Israel uses the United States to continue its ongoing plunder and colonial dispossession of the Palestinian people and, and we have to be aware of this, 
and Israel uses the United States to forward what are imperialist objectives. Uh, there, there is no limitations to Israel's expansionist project. It does see itself as kind of a, a budding empire in that region, hoping to use leverage, use its relationship with the United States, and use its seeming immunity from any kind of accountability with the U.S. at its hip to uh, you know wage wars of aggression with Syria, Iran, etc. And that's that's what we've seen in, in the last several decades. So, with that said. Yonet Levy at Israel's Channel 12 News asked Biden straight up. She said, hey, there's a gap right now. There are Democrats within your party saying that Israel's an apartheid state and that Israel is in need of criticism. And his answer to that, because all she asked was, hey, you can you hear me now? Am I am I back? Sorry, I had to put it on. Do not disturb. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, I must have gotten interrupted. I got a call. I, I forgot to put the phone on. Do not disturb. So, yes, Israel. Uh, Biden just bragged about his support for Israel and talked about how his administration was going to give $4 billion to Israel per year, plus another billion for the Iron Dome, and that they're working on all sorts of projects to fortify Israel's so-called defenses. And so this isn't real. What's interesting about this is not only does this have ramifications for the region, right? Because the more that the United States supports Israel, the more unstable the region is and the more damage is done to the Palestinian people, the Syrian people, Iranian people, etc. But also this is in contradiction with most Democratic Party voters. Most Democratic Party voters want to see the United States support Palestine more. They also don't see Israel as a very reliable friend. It ranks somewhere uh, uh, 10th on a list. There are nine other countries that Democratic Party voters said are more reliable friends in Israel. And less than 1% of those put Israel as a top one or two friend of the United States. So Democratic Party voters are not necessarily 100% pro-Israel. doesn't mean that they're anti-war, right? But there's a lot of reasons and and a lot of public relations nightmares that Israel has caused Democratic Party voters, which is really creating a headache for uh, Joe Biden and the and the Democratic Party. So Joe Biden took the route he generally takes, which is, I'm a bully, I'm that guy, uh, you can't talk to me in any sort of way, defensiveness, all of this, right? Really, really, he really overreacted like usual, but it showed just how much the United States is loyal to Israel. And then the Saudi Arabia question is even more interesting because on his trip to Saudi Arabia, in this meeting with the Gulf Cooperation Council, the New York Times published an article talking about by Peter Sanger, uh, co-authored with Peter Sanger, a a real champion of the Iraq war, right? This was really an article that was meant to tell us 
about what the national security state is thinking. And what they said was that indeed what Joe Biden was doing was not only telling Saudi Arabia to, um, not only Saudi, telling Saudi Arabia to pump more oil into the market and to do what the United States wants in regards to these skyrocketing oil prices, but he kept on mentioning, he kept on mentioning Russia and China. And he is trying to work out some kind of business arrangement with Saudi Arabia where they will now build telecommunications infrastructure with the United States. And what's hilarious about this is that in the article, it is well noted that not only has China already developed such strong ties with um, strong ties with uh, Saudi Arabia. Oh, it's David Sanger. So sorry about that, guys. David Sanger. <laughs> um, appreciate that. Cut the Pentagon uh, for the correction. So David Sanger was the uh, author of that article. But nonetheless, they it states quite clearly that the United States doesn't really have anything to offer, that China has already developed pretty robust telecommunications infrastructure in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia made clear that it is not going to cut ties with China and that it is quite well, it is quite well known within the foreign policy establishment that this move has very little to do with building infrastructure and everything to do with trying to pry Saudi Arabia away from Russia and China. And they basically say it's probably not going to work. And so still, it's it's very important to note that the United States is showing its cards. It's showing it's going around the world saying Russia and China are the enemies. And here's how we are going to fight Russia and China. And so, of course, this isn't the first time Joe Biden has shown these cards. He's been showing them all throughout his administration, right? You remember in March when Joe Biden said during, right at the beginning of Russia's military oper- special military operation in Ukraine, he said that Putin cannot remain in power. He's also said three times that the United States would militarily defend Taiwan from China, militarily intervene uh, in any kind of conflict between Taiwan and China. So, so Joe Biden has been quite. Uh, he's been quite uh, willing to express the most aggressive positions of the neocon foreign policy establishment. And that's because uh, he's a neocon. So then there was a a John Bolton. So you all remember John Bolton, Elmer, everyone says he looks like Elmer Fudd. John Bolton, your former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump. He was also in the Bush administration. And uh, John Bolton is well known, right? He's he's at, he's called for the bombing of Iran, for the U.S. to bomb for Iran for years. He even had a New York Times op-ed calling, and I think it was 2015, calling for the United States to bomb Iran. So John Bolton is also not shy when it comes to the United States's uh, warmongering 
policies. He's not shy in promoting them. He's not shy in telling people exactly what he feels. And so he was asked by CNN about January 6th. You know, he's come out against Donald Trump on that issue, but he has been very much opposed to calling it a coup. And so as he was being asked about this, he expressed that he planned coups, that he planned coups. And so he knows that January 6th is not a coup because he planned them abroad. And while he didn't cite any details and tried to be careful about that, he did mention Venezuela. And we know that John Bolton was very instrumental in trying to remove Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela from power uh, during the Trump administration that he uh, that I think in his book, in his memoir, he talked about laughing when Venezuelan security forces in 2019 were scattered about during that assassination attempt of Nicolas Maduro. So he is not uh, he is not a stranger to uh, stripping off the empire's clothes and stripping the empire naked. But nonetheless, this is just another example talking being very brazen and open about for for all you know the CNN's one of the major corporate media networks in the world willing to just tell people watching that network that yes indeed he was organizing coups and Jay Tapper the of course we all know him as an apologist for empire an apologist for the new cold war an apologist for basically all wars he he really didn't bat an eye all he did was say oh could you tell me more about that but he didn't bat an eye he didn't really challenge we just uh, we were just exposed to the normalization of planning coups in other countries so it's not only joe biden though today right after all of that today the guardian published simone tisdale who is a hawk he is a hawk who's written for the Guardian for a long time now. Uh, Simone Tisdale wrote, I'm, I'm calling him Simone, it's probably Simon. Simon Tisdale, he wrote an op-ed today in the Guardian. Putin is already at war with Europe. There's only one way to stop him. And so... Putin is then blamed. He says, Putin has weaponized food, energy, and refugees, spreading economic and political pain across the continent. Sanctions don't work. A land for peace deal would be a disaster. Only the military route remains. That's the little description under the headline. There's only one way to stop him. Only the military route remains. And I kid you not, I read through this quickly, and I tried to find... Any kind of nuggets that would reinforce this aggressiveness, because you know how it is now with headlines. It's all about trying to grab people. People don't really read articles anymore, or they don't read them as closely as maybe they once did. So there are a few nuggets, and I'm just going to try to um, uh, find them. So he says... Fortunately, there is an alternative using NATO's overwhelming power to decisively turn the military tide. As previously argued here, directed 
direct targeted forceful Western action to repulse Russia's repulsive horde is not a vote for a third world war. It's the only feasible way to bring this escalating horror to a swift conclusion while ensuring Putin and those who might emulate him do not profit from lawless butchery. Intent on inflicting maximum disruption, Putin only menaces the heartlands of European democracy. The writing is on the wall that can no longer be ignored. Enough half measures and the dithering. NATO should act now to force Putin's marauding troops back inside Russia's recognized border. It's not only Ukraine that requires saving, it's Europe too. So that's how he ends the article. After going on, I mean, the whole article is a screed against Russia. Russia's uh, doing this and that. Russia is the enemy. You know, uh, NATO is not at fault. Uh, Russia is weaponizing. Russia is putting Europe into the ground, right? Blaming Russia for Europe's really unstable condition right now. And basically saying that Biden, right? He has he's done this before. That Biden's being weak on on this question. He also says. Such a deal, meaning a negotiated settlement, land for peace deal with Putin, such a deal would be a precedent-setting disaster for future peace and security across the continent and globally too. Just think Taiwan or Estonia. It would destroy the sovereign integrity of democratic Ukraine. So that he's basically saying no to diplomacy and Yes, to World War Three. While saying, no, this wouldn't cause World War Three. NATO confronting Russian troops, no way would that cause World War Three, without any explanation otherwise, without any, without even addressing the counter argument. Because he he is addressing the counter argument when he says, uh, when he says in the conclusion that uh, it is not a vote for a third world war. He says it in the article, right in the second to last paragraph. You can call these paragraphs because it's kind of child's play report, you know, op-ed writing here. It's not really, it's really, it's, you know, so it's the second sentence of the last four or five. So in the conclusion, he's basically saying, no, this isn't a vote for a third world war, but we should have NATO essentially attack Russian troops in Ukraine, in East Ukraine and beat them back. Now, that is not the first time Simon Tisdale has done this. <laughs> I had took the liberty of looking at even just his articles recently uh, where he talks – he uses the word timid a lot. So he has been pushing Biden and the United States to be more aggressive in – and NATO to be more aggressive in Ukraine for months now since the special military operation began. He says, timid West must draw a line in the sea and break Putin's criminal food blockade. Timid Biden condemns Ukrainian to an antagonizing war without end. So just on and on and on, on and on and on. NATO should talk less and do more or Ukraine will be torn a bit or torn apart bit by bit. Uh, so Simon Tisdale or Tisdall, however you say his last name has been amplifying through the British, through the top uh, newspaper in the British corporate media, has been amplifying a message that says the U.S. and NATO need to stop being timid and need to start 
a global confrontation with a, uh, it's confrontation with Russia that would inevitably go global, that would inevitably create a possible scenario for nuclear exchange. And all we get from Simon Tisdall is, nah, it won't. <laughs> no, it's not going to. Uh, that's not a vote for a third world war, what I'm saying. So there you have it. I mean, the empire has no clothes. You have Biden basically doing politically what Simon Tisdale is expressing ideologically in his columns, that what is needed right now is a more aggressive posture toward Russia and toward China. And what's so interesting about this is that it's the most, it couldn't be any more of an indicator of projection. The United States, NATO, they are literally projecting all the things they do onto Russia, all the things they do onto China. Simon Tisdale is known to have called China the only imperialist country in the world. I mean, this is what the foreign policy establishment led by the United States leading this new Cold War, that is what they are trying to convince us of, that the United States and NATO are democratic, that they're fighting for freedoms, that they are against quote-unquote authoritarianism, and that they are for democracy, while Russia and China are quote-unquote autocratic, they are imperialist, they are the ones who are causing all the problems in the world. It's Putin's price hike, Putin's gas tax, right? It's China's supply chain issues, it's China's COVID-19 response that's leading to uh, inflation. It's, it's it, you know... It's, oh, we've got to sanction China over the Uyghur human rights issue, and now they're causing us uh, economic pain, right? It's always, it's always, um, not, it's always anyone but the United States and anyone but NATO. And so it's just so interesting that there is this kind of duality that exists right now in this very chaotic moment, a real crisis-ridden moment. I mean, you have Biden saying things in terms of foreign policy that aren't even going to help him domestically. You would think that Joe Biden in the Biden administration would be saying anything, would be using, and he does this. We saw it with Anthony Blinken going around, you know, he they've all, they, they do this all the time, use foreign policy as a chip for their own domestic ends. You would think that that's what they would be focusing on first and foremost, but everything that the Biden administration did uh, with Israel and Saudi Arabia only has a, a base, a popular base, with a small portion of the electorate that majorities of Democrats don't even want what Biden is selling. And that exists alongside, this openness about this exists alongside this incredible projection that's being laid out that inevitably leads to this projection onto Russia and China, which inevitably leads to an even more confrontational stance with those two countries. So it's a dangerous time. And the reason why it's a dangerous time is because there is a foundation that is crumbling, right? The economic crisis is really driving some of the most unhinged foreign policy establishment maneuvers uh, that we could imagine. And it's all being normalized. So the United States, the NATO countries, they all want to get out from underneath the 
weight of inflation, but they only want to do it if they can starve workers more and militarize the planet more. They don't have any other they don't have any other alternative to that because they don't want their rich investors, their rich donors, their corporate donors, their capitalists, uh, you know, uh, uh, masters to be bothered by uh, 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 to be bothered by these crises, by the response to these crises, right? So. What we're going to see, and we're already seeing it, the New York Times yesterday published an article talking about how the U.S. dollar is, uh, uh, how it's strong, right? And the reason why it's strong is because the euro, the yen, uh, most currencies around the world, other than Russia's really, most currencies around the world have suffered and have become weaker against the dollar, and that's artificially strengthen the dollar and all of the economists and the experts are saying that that's temporary that that's something that is circumstantial and won't last but it's one of the few benefits for the u.s empire for the american empire that's come out of all of this chaos but it's driving the chaos as well it's leading the global economic order right this world capitalist economy uh this uh, uh economic situation is only becoming more unstable because of it countries are becoming poorer they're being thrown into famine and capital itself is looking to drive the world economy into a crisis and we know this and we know it's already happening we know europe is preparing for it france is already talking about rationing we know that europe is preparing for an economic crisis that's going to hit before that's going to hit them before it hits the United States and the United States this is my prediction my prediction is that Joe Biden and the Democrats they don't care about winning they don't care about losing they don't care about any of that when it comes to elections right now what they care about is serving the interests of the empire of their corporate donors to the utmost satisfaction and trying to do the best that they can under those circumstances, which means, in my opinion, they are not looking at the midterm seriously. If they lose the majority in November, that will actually be preferable to them because then the Democrats can pose as the outsider opposition, as kind of like the activist group that tries to place pressure on the outside and then they can cry and whine about how they don't have any power where now it's kind of awkward because they have this slight majority, the thinnest of majorities, still a majority though. They have the thinnest of majorities and can't seem to do anything with it other than push the most reactionary policies. Like for example, passing an 840 billion mega military spending deal unanimously essentially and so i think the best case scenario that the democrats have for themselves and joe biden has in the back of his addled mind is we lose the midterms because it's almost a foregone conclusion and then an economic crisis comes about and over those next two years try to cultivate an image of joe biden or the democratic party if they want to get rid of joe biden as the political party that helped attempt 
or succeed, although that's going to be very difficult to argue in such a short period of time that they succeeded in facilitating recovery, but attempted and did the, the, established the rudiments of an economic recovery. Because that happened in the Obama, during the Obama period, uh, second term. It was a disastrous uh, framing because by the time 2015 rolled around, uh, while the economy, the capitalist economy was artificially looking better, people were still feeling the pain. And then we know what happened after that. Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, became the focal points of the 2016 election. And nothing politically has been the same in the United States ever since. And that was all because of how the impact of the 2007-2008 crisis continued onward during the Obama period. And the Obama administration was really kind of like a, a a soda bottle of an administration shaking, shaking, shaking. And the Obama administration was what was keeping the lid on that, keeping the lid on any kind of unrest uh, to uh, uh, the economic conditions that people were facing, even though there was quite a bit of unrest under the Obama period, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and then uh, it only got worse from there. But the Obama administration did a really good job of redirecting, especially the left, redirecting the left back into the warm embrace of the empire. Um, that's that's kind of how the Obama administration uh, made a killing for the establishment was by neutralizing left politics and making it very difficult for that kind of unrest to turn into anything that could challenge the Democrats. And so Biden is going to hope and probably fail, but the hope will be that the Democratic Party can survive the Oval Office competition selection select can can uh, somehow recover by 2024 to allow a democrat to win because i think what the best case scenario in the democratic party's mind is and the best case scenario also for the gop is that one of them isn't the majority and i think the gop prefers congress over the presidency especially at this time where they don't have they don't have many, uh, how should we say, superstars out there that uh, 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 that they can lean on outside of Donald Trump and people associated with Donald Trump. So Congress, having control of Congress is great for the GOP because they get what they want, right? They do what they want and they get what they want. While Congress have it, while GOP having control of the Congress is great for the Democrats because they can act like they are now on the outside, that they have no power, and uh, essentially... Uh, cultivate a public relations image without any accountability, but that's the political that that's kind of the political crisis that's circling around the Biden administration because the Biden administration is extremely unpopular right now. It's extremely unpopular right now, and it's it's not hard to see why with the economy, with the Ukraine situation, with this uh, hubris, right? I mean, just the way uh, even the mainstream press was slamming Biden. For his fist bump to MD, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, there is a lot of displeasure and discontent, even among the establishment right now, even among establishment supporters of the Democratic Party. So we are seeing a sea change here. We are seeing a crisis unfold, and the empire has no clothes. 
because the American empire doesn't have any reason <laughs> to wear clothing when it needs every possible tool at its disposal to maintain social control, to maintain a, a political stability, and to maintain and expand on its interests in times where it isn't looking too good, right? China is growing. China is going to continue to do what it does, which is build relations with other countries, pro- progress in infrastructure deals, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, they're all the West is making a whole lot about its economic slowdown, but China is doing that not both out of its own decision-making process and also taking into account a long-term vision, which says we don't always need to grow a huge amount every single quarter. We uh, kind of buy time and then unleash when able because they're still dealing with the pandemic. They're still dealing with all the shock waves of what's happening around the world. And <laughs> any kind of panic about China is, in my opinion, ridiculous because it's happened over and over again. The Gordon Chang-like figures all across the media talking about, oh, there's a collapse. Here's the weakening of, of China's economy, all of this. It never comes to fruition. It usually is just panic and fear-mongering which only serves to, you know, only only serves to weaken uh, the United States and to weaken the ability of people to respond to the actually existing conditions that exist right now in the world. And uh, we can expect also for Russia to win this war in Ukraine. I mean, that's what's been happening. Uh, the east of Ukraine, Donbass, is basically in almost complete control of Russia. That's why you have si- Simon Tisdall talking like this. And the economic crisis is here. So that that's the, so these this is shaky foundations. And of course, governments across the West, whether we're talking about France, the UK, the United States, they are all in turmoil politically. None of them are popular. All of them are losing politically. The establishment is losing politically. And that's also, you know, part of this whole crisis situation that we're in. So that's why the empire is no clothes, because the empire can't have any clothes when there's a crisis. How can it spend time concealing its interests when there is so much work to be done? And and that means that there's so much work for us to do uh, in, in terms of the peace movement, in terms of uh, being a voice for peace in terms of uh, making sure that we are doing what we can to counter what right now is this incredibly dangerous propaganda mill that is cycling through and an incredibly dangerous agenda that is being forced down our throats. And so we, you know, we have to get angry and then also uh, get moving. But I don't see any callers in the queue. If you, if there's any callers in the queue, uh, or if there's anyone who wants to come in, have a conversation. Oh, I see Fahim, so I'm gonna let Fahim in, and then yes, I would like others to join. If there's, if you have anything to say, comments, comment. Please keep to uh, under two minutes if you can. Questions, of course, are welcome. So Fahim, you are the caller. Hey, Danny, how are you? I am okay. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, so, okay. So, suppose I am John Bolton coming to you for a psychotherapy. What is driving me? Because uh, he's definitely not an evangelical uh, uh, one. What is 
driving someone like John uh, Bolton? Is it just power or what? Wow. All right. Good question. Good question. So, <laughs> so I'm a, I, I do therapy part-time. I have a background in social work and, and I do therapy. So I like this question. Well, I haven't sat in a chair. I haven't sat next to John Bolton and had an hour-long session with him to begin in the assessment. I would say that John Bolton has both antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. He has qualities of both, which means antisocial personality means that you are someone who has a penchance, an obsession with uh, harming others, with uh, doing, uh, with pursuing activities, goals that all really end up in uh, damaging other people, damaging property, infrastructure. You know, you are basically someone who gets off on hurting other people and hurting society. Um, and narcissism, of course, because we know that John Bolton, from his behavior with the Trump administration to his long career in the foreign policy establishment, we know that he's driven by his career and by his obsessive need for attention. I mean, someone who will openly state, like he did in the New York Times op-ed in 2015, saying, we need to bomb Iran. Someone who will openly do that in the pages of maybe the biggest corporate media uh, newspaper in, on the planet, but especially in the United States, just shows a will, a, a, a deep desire for attention and for uh, you know anything, no matter how damaging it is to other people, anything that will build up his own inflated ego. So I think that if we're just talking about mental health, I think that those personality disorders are perfect for uh, John Bolton and uh, when it comes to um, antisocial and narcissistic traits, no empathy, absolutely no capacity to feel anything for other human beings, just driven by greed and careerism. Um, so thank you for that question. I don't know if there's anyone else. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else who has a question or a comment, but Fahim, I can let you back in if you have any comments about that. No, I mean, I was just curious as to what drives a person like that who is who himself basically did not even sign up or tried to skirt service in Vietnam. And then all of a sudden, uh, basically uh, leading everybody uh, else to uh, basically go and uh, bleed uh, around the world. But uh, the other question that I have is with uh, Germany uh, now arming up and other countries arming uh, uh, up in Europe and uh, with the economic crisis, uh, which is really going to hurt uh, them uh, when the temperatures start to uh, fall. Uh, I mean, a huge part of me is like, you know, you're setting up uh, the scenario of more uh, right-wing uh, folks to uh, basically turn this into like a really violent situation, but this time they're Armed. I mean, the fact of when Germany sent its first 
uh, uh, Panzer Haubitze, which is their uh, howitzers, uh, to uh, Russia after uh, right, I think it was June or or fifth uh, or seventh, uh, and June sixth was when. Um, the uh, um, um, uh, what was um, the uh, Barbarossa started, and I was like, "Wow, shit! No, that's one heck of a way to motivate uh, uh, the people in uh, Russia is uh, German uh, howitzers uh, arriving." But but either way, I mean, I, uh, that is one thing I'd like to get some uh, thoughts uh, from you of the fact of like with all these uh, countries. Uh, now arming up with an economic relief uh, going down uh, the drain. I mean, isn't it setting up a scenario for uh, like a really uh, armed, I mean, really dangerous uh, uh, situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it definitely is. I mean, Europe is in big trouble, uh, especially UK, France, the big European countries, but but it's going to be felt throughout the European Union uh, because there is going to be an economic crisis and the uh, the the issues are obvious, right? It's it's obvious just how corrupt Europe is is behaving that they are literally going against the interests of Europe itself, of any kind of stability for the EU. I mean, it's quite astounding to watch. And I think it already is having these political consequences. Now, I think that there is a possibility for this vacuum that is being created by the EU to allow for strengthening of hopefully a left poll in Europe. We saw a little bit of that in France in the last election, parliamentary election. But of course, we know of uh, all of the limitations of France's left uh, politics at this moment. Uh, but nonetheless, it will also strengthen the far right in Europe, which has been making political gains everywhere, including in Germany. So, we really are, I never thought I would say this, I never thought I would say this, but uh, we really are missing even figures like Angela Merkel, who, despite all of her problems, and of course being very much a part of the establishment, uh, this is something she would never, I don't think she would have done, right, which is completely and utterly go into the anti-Russian, anti-China camp uh, just because the United States and, and, and you know, the United States wants them to, uh, and uh, basically put Europe, the all of Europe, this grand European Union project that they had, uh, putting all of that in uh, real danger in terms of its its stability. So, with that said, Fahim, though, um, I, I don't see anyone else, but I do want to give others the chance to talk. I see no war. In. So I'm going to actually go there because I won't be able to stay that much longer. So please, be, folks, if you do have listeners, questions, uh, please get in the queue now because I won't be able to stay that much longer. But no more, Chris. You are up. Hey, Danny. Hey. Um, Hello. I know you generally focus more on on international topics. I ain't cut your whole uh, your whole monologue, but um, I know you have opinions on domestic topics you know i just watched the uh kind of skim through the hour 22 of 
or hour, roughly hour and a half of video that uh, the Austin American statesman released uh, from Uvalde. And it's really stunning to see how cowardly these cops are. And we're just completely unwilling to act at all and do, like, do anything. And um, I guess my question for you is, what's your reaction to that? And do you, like, how do we fix this problem with police? I mean, I like the idea of defund. I think that we need to rethink police, but I'm curious what you, and, like, redo it, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on on all of that. Hmm. Good question. Good question. Yeah. I mean, my opinions on the Ovalde situation were, uh, well, was, yeah, the police behaved and not, and not a surprise, but to see it so blatantly and it, especially in this kind of event where we generally, we generally think of mass shootings as happening and this is unfortunate, but just as happening to white people, right? I mean, it, it's just kind of how it's gone for the for a lot of them. But never have we seen the police exposed like this in a sort of setting, in a sort of event, this really horrific event that is generally associated as happening, you know, in whiter communities. We generally don't talk about shootings. Generally, they're not mass shootings that happen in other communities. So uh, I think that they were really exposed here. And we also saw the power of the police, the power that they have to shape the narrative, even as they were uh, getting some criticism for how they behaved and so disgustingly to to just kind of stand back and then hinder other people from just reacting, right? Doing what any human being would do uh, in a situation when they aren't tied down to the interests of of power in the state. You you generally try to help people who are uh, being (laughs) massacred. Um, So, yeah, absolutely disgusting. I mean, we saw the photos recently, too, of the cop who was in the school, right, looking at a his phone and there was like a punisher photo of the red white and blue you know just like i mean you know on his screen just like this uh, absolutely disgusting stuff and, and so i mean i've been following policing for a while you know i was back in you know when the black lives matter uprising started all the way back in 2014 i was i was involved in those i've i've definitely um taken attention to this issue especially in my earlier work um and, you know, in my opinion, the police, you know, they're an arm of the state. They are the armed guards of the state. They are an occupying force. Uh, they are about uh, protecting property. They are about uh, waging war on oppressed people uh, within these borders. And I do think that while defunding the police, it surely is one way we could go about this in terms of our demands, I do think it needs to be even more robust than that. And I think we need to call for community control of the police, uh, which has been a demand, especially among uh, Black liberation movement activists and organizations for many decades now, uh, calling for communities themselves to have 
a full control over how the police are formed, shaped, and ultimately uh, 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 directed in each community. What that looks like now under such a powerfully funded uh, military regime that local police departments really are right now, and they've occupied that space for quite uh, many, quite a many years now, right? They have a lot of control over local, uh, state, and even federal politics at this point. Uh, uh, the how what that looks, how we get there, is a question that we are going to have to really think about. But community control, having people themselves, uh, having people themselves in their communities. Uh, be able to determine uh, how, what police, how police, and ultimately uh, why police exist uh, is is really the the step I think we need to take. And, and defunding, of course, I think will go along with that because uh, with that kind of orientation, we won't need we won't need to be throwing so much money at police because uh, they won't be uh, structured as they currently are. So I have Martin in here, and then if you want to stay around, no work, um, Chris, no work, Chris. Um, if you want to stay, stick around, do for a response. But I think I'm going to take Martin, and then uh, you can respond, and then I'm going to have to go. So Martin, I'm putting you as the next caller. Hi, Danny. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Uh, I'm calling you from Norway, and uh, one of the reasons uh, since I actually called was some international issue. But since uh, Norway actually brought up the police issue, we have had one, uh, we had a terrorist attack, if you can call it that, uh, at least towards the LGBTQ community here in Norway a couple of uh, few weeks ago, uh, where two people were killed and uh, over 20 people were. <clears throat> injured while the police were unable to do anything and it was the public who actually stopped uh, the attacker. The same thing happened in uh, Sweden last week where there was a uh, person who attacked uh, a psychologist uh, in a political forum in Sweden. Uh, and again, it was the public who actually stopped them. So I think it is about time to actually redefine what police is and what their jobs are and how, how well they actually do that. Uh, and the other point that I actually wanted to make was, uh, uh, or actually ask you, uh, do you feel that uh, the... And Draghi uh, incident in Italy, where the prime minister is being uh, sort of getting a non-confidence uh, vote against him. And uh, Di Maggio, uh, who is the foreign minister who tried to blame the whole thing on Putin and and blame like uh, the people for considering their own uh, issues and putting their own issues uh, in front of these international or mainly American issues uh, against Russia uh, as the main topic. Uh, do you feel like the it Italian case is going to be a domino, the first of the domino effect that we're going to see going forward? Mm, wow, that's, that's a good question. I mean, we see what's happening with the UK, you know, with their own issues their own, uh, in terms of politics. I haven't been following the Italy situation, although it's definitely been in my kind of like peripheral vision uh, when I'm uh, uh, sort of figuring out the situation in Europe. But I think the point you make here is important in the question is that 
Yeah, there is instability there. And, and surely, it, you know, Italy is an interesting case because Italy definitely has pretty strong relations with both Russia and China, especially China. Um, and, uh, you know, that the whole project of the United States right now is to get countries like Italy to stop having robust economic relations with China. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, even without not knowing much, I do think that especially for countries like Italy, smaller, but very important to the EU, very important to Europe, and also riddled with austerity, I do think that these kind of issues are going to keep coming up because uh, not only are their societies uh, having issues economically uh, and only getting worse with what's going on globally and what the United States has done to Europe, but but also there are these geopolitical interests involved um, in, in putting European countries like Italy in, in this position or, or helping put them further into this position. But um, I want to get to know where Chris, I, I don't think, I don't see anyone else in the queue. So if he has any, do you have any um, further comments? No, I generally agree on, on the question I offered. And then just, you know, I, I heard somebody talking and I don't know if that was the bulk of what your monologue was about. Cause I, tuned in late but the uh the john bolton thing certainly was amazing and then it was interesting to see tapper like kind of ask a follow-up but then you know bolton gets a little coy and it would have tapped been- out <laughs> yeah, yeah he tapped out so <laughs> and it was interesting to push further i mean it was I think we all kind of know that the U.S. has done that, and certainly Bolton being in the positions he's been in in government throughout his career, it's obvious that he's probably been a part of things like that. But it would have been really interesting to pointedly ask him the question of, of, okay, well, what coups and why did you execute upon those, and why do you think, you know, it's your right to do that? Um, Mm -hmm. So that's just a comment, I guess, on on the Bolton it's just it's really interesting to hear him kind of say the quiet part out loud oh yeah definitely definitely well thanks thanks for yeah sure thanks for your call thanks thanks to everyone for their calls i see mark in the queue Uh, i will get to you after just saying one last thing in response uh to the last caller uh you know, it would be nice if jake tapper did some actual journalism i mean that would be incredible but the uh the interesting thing watching Jay Tapper in that situation was that he was both obviously curious about what Bolton was saying, but also obviously uh, maneuvering in a way where he wouldn't get the smoke, right? Where he wouldn't put himself in a position where he could be, uh, uh, where he could be associated as a critic of the U.S.'s obsession with, you know, sponsoring coups around the world. Very, it, it is a very interesting moment to see corporate media hacks like Tapper be put in that position because you both you see the conflict, right? You see the conflict both in them, and also you see all the pressure that surrounds those situations um, and the pressure to to really defend the empire. So, Mark, you are the last one up. Um, 
And then I will go. Before I bring Mark in, though, if you are new to this show, please do follow. Please do subscribe here. Make sure that you are subscribed to Cold War Brew. Make sure that you're following me here on the app so you know when I go live next. Um, and then, oh, so you can support my work on Patreon, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. I do this podcast weekly. I also do weekly streams. I do weekly columns. Um, all of it can be found there. Um, none of my work is behind a paywall. It is on Patreon, but if you follow me um, on Twitter at Spirit of Ho, um, and if you follow me on Telegram at the Haifong Press, uh, you can also get my work. But Patreon is where you can support me. So, Mark, you are next. Me, you are the next caller and the last caller. Sorry, everyone. Hey, hey. Can, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um. Yeah. Uh, Nineteen seventy-two. I was at the University of Wisconsin, and um, I studied the history of the revolution, of Chinese Revolution, and um, I was supposed to write a paper on the Cultural Revolution that year, but there, of course there was no information really available, and um, I was arrested in May of nineteen seventy-two with a lot of law students protesting the bombing of Haiphong Harbor. Hmm. which I thought, you know, knowing your name is kind of uh, funny. But anyway, um, uh, moving forward, um, I eventually became a jazz guitarist. And uh, and um, in uh, uh, I, eventually, I, I first went to China in 2004 to Sichuan, hmm. and I stayed in Chengdu. And, uh, and then I returned to Chengdu. Later on, I, I went to many places in China, um, I stayed in Changsha. I went to Nanning, um, uh, Suzhou, Guilin, Yangshuo, um, uh, Wanangshuo, uh, uh, Hanyi, Shenzai. I can speak Chinese now, and I'm still studying. But um, anyway, in 2017 and 18, I had a Chinese fusion band. I was living in San Francisco most of my adult life. And I was combining uh, jazz and, and rock and funk, but mainly jazz improvisation with Chinese folk music. And I went to China to uh, Chung- the piano player in my band at the time was from Chengdu. So we got gigs in Chengdu and we went there in 2017 and 2018. And I met a lot of really great high level artists there. And I eventually moved to Chengdu in December of 2018. And I, uh, had a, uh, a a great Chinese, I reconstituted my, my Chinese fusion band in Chengdu, and it was very popular. And um, I, I uh, so now I want to talk about China a little bit, since I've, I'm giving a little bit of background that I've lived there. I know uh, China, I've been, mar- both my prior lives have been Chinese, uh, my, my wives, and uh, my children are half Chinese. Um, anyway, uh, so... One of the things, living in California most of my adult life, I always was waiting for the, you know, for California to build its famed bullet train. And of course, when I went to uh, uh, China in 2018, or actually it was even in 2017, I rode the bullet train between Chongqing, which is another place I've, I've stayed in, and uh, Chengdu. And it was uh, a, a fucking amazing. And, um, and when I was living in Chengdu, I loved uh, their, 
their subway systems. And I love the Chinese people. And, you know, I know about how China has taken millions and millions of people out of poverty. You know, I've seen it. And um, there, I, there is no Wukur uh, Guajur there, uh, no homeless. That at least you can see. I saw one crazy person the whole time I was there. I was forced to leave China at the end of August 2020 because of COVID, which caused uh, uh, visa problems for me. Now I'm just been waiting to be able to return. And of course, every day I'm freaked out by um, uh, the chance of world war. Now, the one thing I want to bring up is uh, my best friend in Chengdu, a, a musician I, I played with who was great at tuba throat singing, um, besides my band, I, I played with him every week. And he was from Xinjiang province, and his wife was a Uyghur. Was a Uyghur. He wasn't. but um, And they would go back to Xinjiang all the time. And so, you know, I, the, whole, the whole CIA bullshit about uh, uh, the Uyghurs it is, is basically that, you know, and I've also watched, you know, um, um, Max Blumenthal has a great breakdown on the Uyghur propaganda. And um, anyway, so I just wanted to let, you know, talk to you a little bit about China. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for coming in. Unfortunately, I can't stay on uh, much longer, but definitely set, send me send me a line, send me a message. Um and you know, definitely follow me here, and we can definitely do more talking about this in future episodes because I definitely do want to do more talking about it. I, I've only I was only able to visit for two and a half weeks. I feel like because of the pandemic, I feel deprived because I haven't been able to go back uh, myself, even though I have a deep desire to. I, sh- I have a very similar experience. I feel like I was almost in tears. I feel like I was kind of in tears uh, when I was riding. I took two bullet trains, one from Beijing to Xi'an, and then um, another uh, from uh, uh, not Dunhuang, but there was a neighboring neighboring uh, province that we drove to, and then took it from there. I forget the name of where we took it from to uh, to Arumchi. And, uh, it was, it was incredible and, uh, it was so fast and stable and, and it was just like, yeah, it was like being out. It was just, a be, it was a completely different place and it was, be- it was great. I mean, yeah, it was just normal there. You know, it's just like people, people were looking at me strangely cause I was making a big deal out of it and, and they were just like, what's, what's this, what's this guy doing? What's this foreigner doing over here? Um, but no, it was a great a great experience. Um, and yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that, you know, cause when I was, I was, I was in there for three days in a room. She, you know, people are super nice. They're, they're living much better. People are really enthusiastic about talking to foreigners about how their lives have improved. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, the CIA nonsense, the, the anti China narrative, this whole Uyghur genocide, uh, uh, myth that's been promoted to forward the aims of the American empire. It's, it's so damaging. And yes, it is building up toward a confrontation that nobody wants, or at least that the majority of people don't want. And, and so, and, and China doesn't want uh, government and people. They don't want it. They don't want war, uh, but the United States keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And we'll, we'll definitely have to uh, talk more 
Um, so Matt, yeah, definitely send me a, a, a mark. I mean, sorry about that. Definitely send me a line. Um, and you know, you can message me here and, uh, we can continue the conversation. Uh, definitely follow me here too. But yeah, that was great. I love hearing about people's China stories uh, because despite it being such a, a very open country in terms of its integration with the world, with the world economy, with, um, you know, just, I mean, it hosts like the most students from abroad, African uh, students uh, f- uh, from the continent, you know, despite the fact that most people around the world who, uh, uh, you know, most countries around the world have deep bonds with China. We live in a country right now that's so propagandized that people are led to believe that the, that China is somehow closed off from people. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's, and it's quite the shift. And it's been a shift that's been happening for, you know, more than a decade now. So, you know, we will definitely have more conversations about that in future programs, but I do have to go. I hope you all have a great, Sunday. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, No War Chris. Thank you, Martin. Sorry I didn't get back to you, uh, but definitely continue to follow here. Keep bringing that up. I definitely need more expertise from Europe. So appreciate your um, appreciate your contributions and everyone else too who called in. Thanks so much. Continue to follow me here. Make sure you're following the show. Make sure you're following my profile. Um, and of course, you can support me at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Salute everyone. And I'll be back with Cold War Brew uh, next week. Bye-bye.